The Bob Murphy Show, episode 257. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show so today we're going to get into some deep stuff deep thoughts with Hans Hoppe. I'm going to be going over what is my favorite piece of work from Hans Hoppe. And I debated whether to even get into this or not. So sure, let's go ahead and do the obligatory stuff because otherwise people are going to be upset and say I'm a coward and blah, blah, blah. Every time Hoppe's name comes up, people always throw all this stuff at me and demand that I answer something. So let me just say again, for the record, Hans Hoppe has written some things that I disagree with. Okay. On the other hand, I've seen plenty of stuff where people will quote him and say, see what he's saying here is X, Y, Z. And it's obvious that no, that's not what he's saying. But for some people, it doesn't matter whether you're accurate or not because he's such a bad guy. The most extreme link that I've seen once was somebody was mad told me how awful Hoppe was. And I said, why? What did he say? What do he do now? And it was, oh, because he had a conference in Turkey and one of the speakers was this guy. And I said, what? And the guy there at the conference said something horrible. Well, no, but see, he wrote this book and on page 87 of this book, look at this awful statement. And so it was like, I'm a jerk because I work for an institute that also employs another economist who had a conference where he invited a guy who had a book that said something bad on page 87. And they're saying this with a straight face like I'm a jerk. So anyway, there you go. So there's my disclaimer. Now, why am I bringing up the stuff with Hoppe? Because this particular thing I want to go over, I thought was extremely interesting. It blew my mind when I first read it. And I want to share it with you folks. And what prompted me to do this was not because I got into a Twitter war with Phil Magnus recently, but rather my wife in one of her psychology classes, it was like a history of psychology. And the professor was a Kantian and assigned a lot of material for the students to go look at what Kant did vis-a-vis David Hume. And in particular, getting into the so-called synthetic a priori truths and how Kant thought that was a thing. And that was, you know, a response to Hume or a critique of Hume. And The professor, in my view, rightfully thought this was an amazing move by Kant, whether you think it's right or wrong, like, wow, that's an interesting direction he took things and look what it did for philosophy. And the professor was arguing, set the groundwork for a lot of more current or I should say more modern developments in like the philosophy of mind and cognitive science. All right. So I don't know that I'm going to get into that so much in this particular episode, But it was that that made me say, you know what? I want to do an episode on my podcast about this stuff, in particular how Hoppe was saying, a cut to the chase, that Mises with his action axiom solved the mind-body problem. All right, and so that's, huh, that's kind of a bold statement. 
So that's the kind of stuff we're going to get into in this episode. So I think before we dive into the weeds too much, why don't I do a little warm up and just kind of give the big picture on some of these issues just to make sure the listeners that you folks understand what Mises was getting at with this stuff. Because sometimes if you're only hearing it from critics or even from friends sometimes who don't really understand it, you might get the wrong idea. So the way I was explaining it in my debate with David Friedman, I'll try to remember folks to link. I don't have a pen in front of me right now. I'm recording while I'm traveling and I'm in a region with no pens. If I forget to put it in the show notes page, then on YouTube, you can just look it up. It's If you do Bob Murphy, David Friedman, it's got a lot of hits. We debated each other at Porkfest once. And what we debated was method and economics. And the way I was trying to motivate it was like this. The knock against Mises is the critics will say, oh, he's not scientific. Mises thought you didn't need data. You didn't need experience of the real world. You could just sit and do thought experiments in your head. And that's how you do economics. And, you know, well, what if your deductions are wrong? Or do you need, you need to go test your intuitions against reality, cold, hard reality, that sort of thing. And the way I was trying to motivate it was to say, sure, in physics, you need to test your theories. You can have an elegant theory but ultimately, it's got to have testable implications. Like you can't say, my theory is that there's an invisible green elf who causes the sun to rise in the east every day. And even in principle, we can never observe the elf. But trust me, he's there. That's not a scientific theory. It's not just that we think it's right or wrong. It's just that's not scientific because there's no way you could ever test that. All right. Or I guess maybe somebody's saying it's not scientific. That's what their problem would be. All right. But that attitude doesn't translate well into economics, right? So it's great in physics and chemistry and biology, that sort of attitude, but it doesn't work in economics because a lot of what we think of as bedrock results for how are we going to go view the world as economists, it's not derived from empirical testing, all right? And the best example I could come up with for the pork fresh crowd was to say, for those of you who have read anything in free market economics, you're probably big fans of free trade. And so think back to what made you a free trader, not a traitor, trader. I'm guessing it's because you read some classic essay like Frederick Bastiat's Petition of the Candlemakers, for example, or Henry Hazlitt's adaptation of it. Or I know I found a great one, Steve Landsberg in his Armchair Economist reprinted an argument called the Iowa car crop that he had gotten from David Friedman, which was a great example. It was something like, we have two technologies for producing cars, excuse me. One technology is you take steel and rubber and glass and you put them into a factory in Detroit and one end and out of the other end pops out a bunch of cars. The different technology is you go to Iowa and you harvest a bunch of wheat and then you go to the California coast and you load it onto ships and you send the ships over the horizon, and then you wait, and then the ships come back and they have Toyotas on them. That's another technology we have for creating cars in the United States. And if you view it like that, it's crystal clear why protectionism is stupid. That's just the government arbitrarily penalizing one technology in favor of another. And, you know, so that's another way of looking at it. Or Henry George has his famous line, and this might not be an exact quote, but this is the spirit of it to say, 
under protectionism, our own government does to us in peacetime what our enemies seek to do to us in wartime, right? Namely, what does the enemy do in wartime? They try to like blockade your country with their Navy and not let imports get in. But if the standard logic of protectionism is correct, then the enemy should be doing you a favor. Like think of all the jobs the enemy is going to create in your domestic industries by not letting imports in. Look at all the work it's going to create for your citizens. That's great, right? They're doing you a favor. No, they're starving you of imports and they're hurting the war. You know, they're making it hard for you to defend yourself. So which is it? Do imports make the country richer or poorer? Okay, so those types of examples, notice they're largely thought experiments. They're not thought experiments the same way that, you know, Euclidean geometry is. Like, imagine if you had two triangles and you put them together and formed a rectangle and blah, 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 blah. What could we conclude? It's not like that. Like, it's based in real world things. And if you were locked in a closet your whole life, you wouldn't know. What do you mean by this Navy? What is a blockade, Bob? I don't even know what that term means. But you see the Senate. We're not running regressions. It's not that we're trying to control for confounding factors. And then we're going to statistically analyze whether higher tariff rates lead to higher or lower real per capita GDP growth or something. That no, these are just ways of thinking and just like simple thought experiments. All of a sudden you see it and oh, oh yeah, protectionism is stupid. Okay, so that's what I was trying to convey in my debate with David Friedman. And to say that for Mises, the core of economic logic, just by me saying that logic, is stuff that you deduce just thinking it through carefully and coherently, step by step. And so it's not that you go out and look at the data and then determine what you think about economic laws. It's that you need to first think through the logic of action in order to then have a framework with which you parse the data of the world. For one thing is, how do you know what data are relevant? Right? You have to make a decision at the outset what sorts of things are going to count. You're going to go measure the humidity levels to try to figure out what's causing unemployment to go up. I mean, there used to be this thing called sunspot theory. And back when agriculture was a bigger staple of the economy, that arguably made sense that, oh, yeah, the sunspots might affect crop cycles and blah, blah, blah. All right. So that's one way of understanding where Mises is coming from when he says that the way we discover economic laws is not the same way that physicists go out and discover the, quote, laws of nature. They're just different approaches. Another thing I should mentioned before we get into the real technical stuff, that term action. So Mises' famous book is called Human Action. So action means purposeful behavior. Okay, so if the doctor takes his hammer out and smacks your kneecap with it and your leg shoots up, that's not action. That's a reflex, right? You didn't choose to do that. You couldn't help it. Whereas if the doctor standing in front of you and says, your mother earned a living by the oldest profession in the book, and you move your leg up and kick the doctor, you chose to do that. That's action. Okay. And action doesn't need to be successful, right? So you see people dancing around because they want it to rain. We might say with our views of what causes precipitation, well, that's irrational. That's, but no, that, that counts as action. It's purposeful behavior. People choosing a means to achieve a desired end. Okay. So... I think now might be the time to get into the deeper stuff. Let me give a caveat here. I am by no means an expert 
in this epistemology is the technical term for this stuff. Like, how do we know things? And I don't even, I think I might have read the Hume stuff in the original. I have not read Kant in the original. And I don't even mean like, <laughs> I read a translation. I'm saying what I know of Kant is from secondary accounts. I never sat down and read a bunch of Kant in the original in the primary sources. All right. I believe what I'm going to tell you folks is all correct, but I just, I don't want to be posing as some expert on this stuff. All right. So why don't we read? Okay. So from David Hume's An Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding, Section 4, Part 1, he says, all the objects of human reason or inquiry may naturally be divided into two kinds, to wit, relations of ideas and matters of fact. Okay, so for Hume, there was this twofold distinction. Yeah, on the one hand, you get relations of ideas, and on the other hand, you have matters of fact. Oh, the first kind, so again, relations of ideas, are the sciences of geometry, algebra, and arithmetic. And in short, every affirmation which is either intuitively or demonstratively certain that the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the square of the two sides is a proposition which expresses a relation between these figures. Da -da 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 -da. Okay. Propositions of this kind are discoverable by the mere operation of thought without dependence on what is anywhere existent in the universe. Though there never were a circle or triangle in nature, the truths demonstrated by Euclid would forever retain their certainty and evidence. Okay, now Hume goes on. Matters of fact, which are the second objects of human reason, are not ascertained in the same manner, nor is our evidence of their truth, however great, of a like nature with the foregoing. The contrary of every matter of fact is still possible because it can never imply a contradiction and is conceived by the mind with the same facility and distinctness as if ever so conformable to reality. That the sun will not rise tomorrow is no less intelligible a proposition and implies no more contradiction than the affirmation that the sun will rise. We should in vain, therefore, attempt to demonstrate its falsehood. Were it demonstratively false, it would imply a contradiction and could never be distinctly conceived by the mind. All right, so what Hume is getting at there, again, he's making a twofold distinction. You've got relations of ideas. That's things in there are like geometry and algebra. And then you've got matters of fact. And the relations of ideas, how do you know whether they're true or false? You just think them through. And if it's something that is false, you know, you just think about it and you can imply a contradiction with it and say, no, wait, that can't be true. Because if it were true, it would imply a contradiction. Whereas to say the sun won't rise tomorrow, that doesn't imply a logical contradiction. It's conceivable the sun won't rise tomorrow. All right, and so and this also ties into Hume's famous critique of science, right, the problem of induction. Like in science, we kind of assume if something's happened a million times in the past, it's going to happen that way in the future. But really, that's not a valid argument. And yet, empirical science kind of rests on those sorts of assumptions that if we really isolate what the causal factors were, something if, you know, if X caused Y before, we think X will cause Y in the future. And the whole point of the experimental process is just to isolate the different possible causes to narrow down what's actually driving this. But even in our attempt to do that, the whole undertaking, the whole enterprise of experimental science assumes that the laws of causality that were operating before are going to operate in the future. And you're just trying to figure out what those laws are. But really, there's no reason to suppose the universe operates that way. We just kind of assume that it does. All right. And then Karl Popper comes along and says, I believe I have solved Hume's problem of induction. Okay. 
So now Kant comes along and Kant, that's why I like the psychology class that my wife took because I didn't know this, but Kant apparently read Hume and was just like, whoa, and was like awakened out of his slumber or something like that. And then like, this is what drove Kant to go ahead and write his famous works. And so what Kant ends up doing is he comes up with a two-pronged dichotomy, right? So on the one hand, he has a distinction between analytic and synthetic statements. And then he also has a distinction between a priori and a posteriori statements, okay? And so analytic ones are statements and the mnemonic that people use is to say you can just analyze the terms, right? So the famous example people give is to say a bachelor is an unmarried male or to say a bachelor is a male, for example, that's an analytic statement. It just happens to be true. And so what does that mean? To say, hey, is it the case that bachelors are male or that a bachelor is male? You don't need to go out and take a sample of 300 bachelors and see how many of them are male and then look at the standard deviation and then figure out what's the p-value on that to rule out the null hypothesis that some bachelors are female. Right, that's not what you do. You just say, well, no, by definition, a bachelor means an unmarried male. So then through logical deduction, if X is a bachelor, then we can conclude X is a male. All right, we don't need to go empirically assess this. It follows from just the definition itself, from analyzing the terms. Okay, A synthetic proposition is one that is not analytic, so you can't know it just by analyzing the terms I think the way Kant described it was he said, the truth of it depends on things outside the original concept itself. So it wasn't just implied by the very notion of the original construct. It was something that was outside of it. And so the mnemonic here is like, you synthesize new knowledge. It's not just contained with what you originally knew, but you synthesize something new. So it's a synthetic proposition. Okay, then the other distinction the Kant makes is between a priori and a posteriori statements. So a priori statements, you can determine their truth or falsehood without experience, right? Without looking prior to observing the world. That's like the mnemonic I use. I don't know if other people use that, like because it's a priori, it's in there. The word prior is kind of in there. All right. So prior to looking out at the world, you can figure out if a priori statements are true or false. Whereas a posteriori it's only after the fact. You have to go look at nature or look at reality or whatever in order to assess whether they're true or false. Okay? So his taxonomy of statements is more sophisticated than Hume's was. But if you took Hume's arguments and put them in the Kantian framework, Hume would say all mathematical truth is analytic a priori. Propositions like the sun is hot and the Empire State Building is two feet tall, so notice that's a false statement, would be synthetic a posteriori. And as far as the category synthetic a priori, Hume would believe that's the empty set, that there's no such thing as a statement that you couldn't determine its truth or falsehood just by thinking about it, just through deduction or the mere operation of thought without going in using your sensory observations of the external world, right? Because that's what it would mean if it's a priori. 
but yet it's a synthetic proposition that you're not merely analyzing terms, that you're discovering something beyond what was in the original concepts that you had. And yet you can arrive at that again, for me myself, not by sensory input, not by observation, but rather just through mere thought, just thinking it through. Okay. Whereas Kant thought there were such things as synthetic a priori statements. And I did watch some YouTube lectures and read some stuff and even read some of Kant's original things on this. It has to do with stuff like cause and effect. Like, I think that was one of the ones he, examples he gave that, like, right, as Hume said, to know whether the sun's going to rise in the east tomorrow, that's an empirical proposition, that's a posteriori. But to even go and look at stuff like that, you kind of already had to have the notion of cause and effect in your mental faculties, like in your vocabulary or the framework with which you go out and look at the world. And like, where did that come from? It's not that you empirically observed cause and effect as a concept. Again, I'm perhaps not doing justice to Kant's argument, but it's stuff like that where he was saying, giving different examples of how, you know, like the way that you arrived at certain truths presupposed that you must have had some concepts already in your toolkit. And where did they come from? Like, it's not an infinite regress. You couldn't just be, oh, well, you got those because of the, it's like, no, for you to even get the ball rolling, you already had to have some conceptual items and machinery in place that you then use to start making sense of the world. And so those things were synthetic a priori. Okay, fair enough. So now I'm giving you enough background where we can jump into Hoppe. So here's Hans Hoppe, and this is his booklet called Economic Science and the Austrian Method. And again, this is my favorite thing that Hoppe has written. And so let me just jump to the chase. So Hoppe's talker, he summarizes some of Kant's work, and then he says, how do we find such axioms? Kant answers by reflecting upon ourselves, by understanding ourselves as knowing subjects. And this fact, that the truth of a priori synthetic propositions derives ultimately from inner, reflectively produced experience, also explains why such propositions can possibly have the status of being understood as necessarily true. Observational experience can only reveal things as they happen to be. There's nothing in it that indicates why things must be the way they are. Contrary to this, however, writes Kant, our reason can understand such things as being necessarily the way they are, quote, which it has itself produced according to its own design. Right, so that's a quote from Kant. In all this, Mises follows Kant. Yet, as I said earlier, Mises adds one more extremely important insight that Kant had only vaguely glimpsed. So just to give you folks, this is me talking now, to give you folks the big picture, what Hoppe is arguing here is that Mises advanced Kantian epistemology, that Mises took this brilliant innovation that Kant had come up with in his response to Hume and pushed it further down the field. It has been, so now back to Hoppe, it has been a common quarrel with Kantianism that this philosophy seemed to imply some sort of idealism. For if, as Kant sees it, true synthetic a priori propositions are propositions about how our mind works and must of necessity work, how can it be explained that such mental categories fit reality? How can it be explained, for instance, that reality conforms to the principle of causality if this principle has to be understood as one to which the operation of our mind must conform? Don't we have to make the absurd idealistic assumption that this is possible only because reality was actually created by the mind? 
So that I'm not misunderstood, I do not think that such a charge against Kantianism is justified. And yet, through parts of his formulations, Kant has no doubt given this charge some plausibility. Okay, let me just make sure I'm not losing you folks. So what Hoppe is saying here is certain passages from Kant where he's arguing about like the notion of causality, right? And to be clear, we're not saying like that Kant's saying, oh, did this particular ingredient in the solution cause the explosion in the flask? No, he's not talking about specific causes and effects. He's talking about the notion, the concept of causality per se. Kant is saying like, that's something that's just how our mind is constructed. Like we just have that there. It's not that we started out as a blank slate and then through induction came up with the concept of causality. That doesn't even make sense. And so because of certain passages where he's making that type of argument, Hoppe is saying some critics have said that, oh, Kant is just assuming that our mind works a certain way and imposes the structure on the outside world. And so reality seems to us a certain way only because our mind forces us to interpret it or parse it that way. And now Hoppe is saying, even though, yeah, there's passages where Kant sounds like that's what he's saying, it's actually not what his position is. And then he gives a sight to some guy making the cake. Okay. So I personally am not taking a stand on that one way or the other, because again, I haven't read much of Kant in the original. I'm just making sure you guys aren't getting lost in what Hoppe's saying. Okay. So now we're coming back to Hoppe and he's going to say an example from Kant that makes it look like Kant is saying our mind imposes a certain structure on reality. Consider, for example, this programmatic statement of his, his being of Kant. Quote, so this is Kant speaking. So far it has been assumed that our knowledge had to conform to observational reality, end quote. Instead, it should be assumed, now back to a quote, that observational reality conformed to our knowledge. Okay, so again, Kant said, so far it has been assumed that our knowledge had to conform to observational reality, but instead of that as the sort of working assumption Kant says, it's actually more accurate to say observational reality conforms to our knowledge. Okay, and so Hoppe is granting that, yeah, certain passages like that make it sound like Kant really is just saying our mind just imposes a certain structure on reality because that's just the way we're built. Back to Hoppe. Mises provides the solution to this challenge. It is true, as Kant says, that true synthetic a priori propositions are grounded in self-evident axioms and that these axioms have to be understood by reflection upon ourselves rather than being in any meaningful sense, quote, observable. Yet we have to go one step further. We must recognize that such necessary truths are not simply categories of our mind, but that our mind is one of acting persons. Our mental categories have to be understood as ultimately grounded in categories of action. And as soon as this is recognized, all idealistic suggestions immediately disappear. Instead, an epistemology claiming the existence of true synthetic a priori propositions becomes a realistic epistemology. Since it is understood as ultimately grounded in categories of action, the gulf between the mental and the real outside physical world is bridged. As categories of action, they must be mental things as much as they are characteristics of reality. For it is through actions that the mind and reality make contact. Okay, I'm going to back up and read the last few sentences there, because if you grasp what Hoppe is saying there, it is mind-blowing. All right, here we go again. In epistemology, claiming the existence of true synthetic a priori propositions becomes a realistic 
epistemology. Since it is understood as ultimately grounded in categories of action, the gulf between the mental and the real outside physical world is bridged. As categories of action, they must be mental things as much as they are characteristics of reality. For it is through actions that the mind and reality make contact. Okay, so that's what I meant when I said Hoppe is claiming that Mises solved the mind-body problem with his action axiom. All right, so because what is action? Again, it's purposeful behavior. So what does that mean? So you as the analyst, you're observing what from one perspective is just a bunch of cells or even a bunch of atoms. And as far as we know, all the atoms in a human's body obey the standard laws of physics, right? So from one perspective, no, that's just F equals MA or whatever, quantum physics, if you're going to get that zoom in that far, okay? And yet, when we say, oh, I'm seeing something purposeful here, that's how I'm going to interpret that. So notice it's decision by the outside observer as to how to assess the situation. When someone throws a rock up in the air and we see the parabola that it traces out, we don't say, oh, at first the rock wanted to get away from us, then it changed its mind and decided to come back down to us because it found us friendlier. We don't talk like that. It's not just that that would be wrong. It's just that that's not scientific. It's not how we talk about rocks. They don't have intentions or goals or purposes. But if a plane takes off and it goes up and up and up and then all of a sudden it comes back down and lands, it would make sense to say, oh, maybe the pilot realized they forgot something important. Maybe the pilot got up there and realized they were low on fuel. Or maybe the pilot got up there and realized there was a terrorist on board, whatever. Okay, so you do start talking about intentions when there's humans involved. And that it's so natural that we don't even think about it. But yet, that's what's going on in praxeology. Okay, so we're seeing matter in motion. We're seeing things in the physical material world. And we're explaining them by reference to the intangible mental realm. That, oh, there's an ego there. There's a conscious being that has desires and reason and is attempting to adopt a means to achieve an end. All right, so you see somebody grab a glass of water and pour it down his throat. And we say, why did he do that? Or what just happened there? And say, oh, I think he's thirsty. There's a lot packed into that. It's not only that you're interpreting it as purposeful behavior, right? If there were an earthquake and the glass tipped over, you wouldn't say the San Andreas fault was thirsty and was trying to get the water to fall into the crevice to satisfy its thirst. You wouldn't talk like that. But when you see a bunch of muscles and bone extend a limb forward and the fingers curl around a glass and then the muscles contract in a certain way to make it bend at the elbow and then tip the glass such that the liquid inside pours into an open orifice and then there's swallowing occurring muscles pushing the water down into the stomach and we say ah i think that person was thirsty again there's a lot going on there among other things you think that the person has the belief that drinking the liquid will quench the thirst because otherwise the person wouldn't do it it's not enough that you know that drinking water or whatever the liquid is will help alleviate thirst. It's that if you're interpreting that as an action, as conscious, purposeful behavior, that you think there's a being there 
who not only is thirsty, but who believes putting the liquid in the belly will quench that thirst. Otherwise, the person wouldn't do it. Okay. So notice there, though, that it's so action involves the marriage of physical phenomena, matter in motion. And we're explaining that not merely by the mindless laws of physics, but the way we're explaining what just happened is we're invoking the existence of an unseen personality, a, an ego, a will that has goals and has reason and is grappling and is trying to influence its external environment in order to become more satisfied. And so that's what Hoppe is saying when, or that's what he means when he says, for it is through actions that the mind and reality make contact. Okay, so hopefully I've blown your mind, not your brain, mind you, your mind, because brains and minds are different things. And now let me just do one last wild card, right? So it's like, oh, wow, okay, this is great stuff. And I was at Hillsdale College and I was teaching this, you know, in a slower fashion. And I, on the board, I would draw the, you know, like the cross. And then in the top left, I'd have what analytic a priori. And then the top right would be analytic a posteriori. The bottom left would be synthetic a priori and so forth. Synthetic a posteriori in the bottom right. And I'd go through and you know, this category is empty. And this one could have something in it. Da, 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 da. And this one, you know, the sun is hot. And this one, two plus two equals four. And I go through all that stuff. And then I explain what Hop is doing. Da, 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 and I'm teaching all that. And then someone pointed out to me, not a student, an expert. I won't say his name because I don't know if he wants me to say his name. He said, Bob, this is all cool stuff. I like what Hoppe does in that booklet, but go check it out. Mises didn't think praxeology was synthetic a priori propositions. Mises thought praxeology was analytic. And I was like, what? And I went and looked. So it's not smoking gun. Like Mises doesn't dwell on it, but what Mises does in human action is he stresses a priori. So for sure, Mises says that praxeological truths are a priori. And that's where the knock against him comes. Like, oh, he's not scientific. He doesn't go out and test his results, just does his armchair theorizing. But again, Hoppe was saying, putting a lot of stress on the fact that Kant comes up with this innovation where he says, no, there's such thing as synthetic a priori proposition. By the way, let me just explain something because I, I realized I didn't make this point. If you're still like, yeah, geez, Bob, I don't know. And my stuff with the free trade didn't really grab you. For someone who says that something needs to be empirical, something needs to be at least in principle falsifiable or else it's not scientific, it's not adding to our knowledge, it's just wordplay. It's just tautologies. Like to say a bachelor is an unmarried male, that doesn't really teach us about the world. All that does is teach us about conventions in the English language, right? It's not that we've learned about men or something or about bachelorhood. It's just a definition, Right, so if Martians came up to us and we told them, hey, do you know that bachelors are male? All we would really be informing them is this is how we use language. In contrast, though, if Martians showed up and we said, hey, do you know that if you've got a right triangle, the square of the hypotenuse equals the sum of the square of the other two sides? If they had never seen that demonstration and we showed it to them, they would say, whoa, that's really cool. And they would think at least if their minds were like ours, that they just learned something about reality. Right? And so I agree with Kant that there are synthetic a priori statements. There are things, there are propositions whose truth value, or should I say the truth value of which, because they're not alive, that we can 
determine, not by going out, you know, like, so you wouldn't go out and measure all the right triangles and see, does the Pythagorean theorem hold true in enough of them? And the ones where it doesn't, we just assume it's experimental error or measurement error. It's not how you prove the Pythagorean theorem. You prove it. You don't go test it. So again, you don't test the Pythagorean theorem or other results in geometry or math in general the way you go test whether special relativity is, is correct or general relativity, right? Like Newton's laws and Einstein's framework gave different predictions for the orbit of Mercury. And so you can go look and see, oh, yeah, Einstein for the wind. That's not what you do with Euclidean geometry. You literally prove it, okay? Whereas you can't prove that general relativity is true. And in fact, small enough scale, it's not true. So in general, it's not true. No pun intended. All right. So what Mises was saying is praxeology, and that's his fancy term for the study of action, the logic of action, because praxis is action. So economics is a subset of praxeology. That just because I, Ludwig von Mises, am arguing that praxeology is a priori, that the way we determine the truth or falsity of its propositions is just through rational introspection, through logical step-by-step -step deduction from starting axioms like humans act. Don't dismiss it as mere wordplay. Because after all, Mises says, geometry, that's how it operates. And surely we wouldn't just say, oh, geometry is just a fun hobby. And we're not really learning anything new about reality because all of the results in geometry were implied in the original axioms. No, you think that somebody who discovers some new geometric result contributed to human knowledge in a way that's much different from to say, oh, hey, did you know that a bachelor is a male? Okay. So Mises for sure thinks praxis a priori, but I'm saying it sure looks like in human action, he's claiming that it's analytic as opposed to synthetic. So for example, this is coming from page 38 of the Scholar's Edition. He's got a section called the a priori in reality. A prioristic reasoning is purely conceptual and deductive. It cannot produce anything else but tautologies and analytic judgments. All its implications are logically derived from the premises and were already contained in them. Hence, according to a popular objection, it cannot add anything to our knowledge. Mises continues, All geometrical theorems are already implied in the axioms. The concept of a rectangular triangle already implies the theorem of Pythagoras. This theorem is a tautology. Its deduction results in an analytic judgment. Nonetheless, nobody would contend that geometry in general and the theorem of Pythagoras in particular do not enlarge our knowledge. Cognition from purely deductive reasoning is also creative and opens for our mind access to previously barred spheres. The significant task of a prioristic reasoning is on the one hand to bring into relief all that is implied in the categories, concepts, and premises, and on the other hand, to show what they do not imply. It is its vocation to render manifest and obvious what was hidden and unknown before. Okay, and then he goes on to apply it to economics. All right, so Hoppe does a great job, but I'm not going to read it now because I want to wrap this episode up. In the essay that I mentioned that I was reading to you from, he then goes through and shows how just from the concept of action, you can deduce all sorts of economic concepts. Like, so again, let me do this. These are my words, but, and I did this in, I don't know if I did it in choice. I think I did it in my book, Lessons for the Young Economist. I don't know if I did it in choice. But I went through and I just showed how with the very concept of action, purposeful behavior, it implied a bunch of stuff, right? So to say, you know what? 
instead of like the way we explain the behavior of a rock or of a cloud or of a star, where we're just going to use the concepts of physics there, when it comes to human beings, at least for some of the phenomena, we're going to explain it through action. We're going to assume that they have goals and reason they're trying to achieve those goals. Once you do that, and you're going to interpret something as if, you know, you're saying, I just observed a human action. So that implies the person had preferences, right? Like you interpreted the person's arm shooting forward and their fingers curling around the glass and then emptying the glass into the mouth. And you said, oh, I bet you that person was thirsty. That's how I'm going to interpret what just happened there. So that implies the person has preferences, that the person preferred quenching thirst to remaining thirsty. That implies the concept of a cost, right? That the person suffered the cost of the value the person placed on the next best alternative. Like what could the person have done instead of drinking that liquid? It implies thinking on the margin. There's all sorts of, you know, you can just go through step by step. There's a bunch of other ones I, I would have to think about for a minute. Okay, so I'm just saying, but notice too, to say that, oh, I'm going to interpret that person as acting, that that's purposeful behavior, and that that implies the existence of an opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is not just the same thing as action rearranged, right? It's not the same type of deduction as to say a bachelor is male, right? It wasn't in the definition of action. And yet there's a sense in which purposeful behavior implies the existence of opportunity cost. It implies the existence of preferences. Okay, so, and again, Hoppe does a good job in this booklet of spelling that stuff out. Okay, so anyway, the point I was making with Mises, though, is to say, ironically, even though Hoppe sold me on the idea that, oh, yeah, Mises totally advanced Kantian epistemology with economic propositions or good examples of synthetic a priori statements, just like Kant claimed existed. But yet Mises himself seemed to classify them as analytic a priori statements. So Mises still thought they were awesome. And his point was, don't dismiss analytic statements as being nothing burgers. Look at how amazing they are, because, you know, geometry is too. Whereas, again, Kant thought there were synthetic a priori statements and Hoppe thought that what Mises had done was to show the existence of other types of synthetic a priori statements. Okay, I will stop there. Thanks for your attention, folks. I'm going to put a link, not only, of course, to the Hoppe essay and the David Friedman debate, if I remember, but also to David Gordon has a Mises University lecture on this stuff that if you're interested and want to hear more. And also, I should thank him. I, email, I was emailing him a lot before this episode to just make sure my understanding of Hume and Khan was okay. So for all these links, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 257, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.